Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. The Song of Solomon. E.C. Hadley. Believer's Bookshelf Grace and Truth, Inc. 210 Chestnut Street, Danville, Illinois, 61832 USA Song of Solomon 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee, the king has brought me into his chambers, we will be glad and rejoice in thee, we will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee, Canticles 1, 1 1-4. This wonderful song of Solomon, abounding in figurative language so rich in spiritual meaning, is called the song of songs, that is, it is the one song that surpasses all other songs for excellency and beauty. It is a love song, the greatest love song ever sung because it speaks of the most ardent love and the greatest lover the world has ever known. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, wooing to himself a bride from among the children of men. In its primary application it is a prophecy of Christ, the Messiah of Israel, wooing to himself the heart of the Jewish remnant after the church has been caught up to glory. It is a profitable study to take up this Song of Solomon in its prophetic application to Israel, and in fact some passages can only be rightly understood when considered in this connection. But when we realize that the love of the Lord to Israel, his earthly bride, is but a shadow or reflection of his deeper love to his heavenly bride, we find immense profit in applying these beautiful figures to ourselves. So while we should not forget that these figures have a direct application to the remnant of the last days, yet we will find that they have also a deeper, full and spiritual application to ourselves as members of the heavenly bride. With these few introductory remarks we will now take up this song of songs verse by verse. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, verse 1. Solomon is the writer, his name means peace. Of him it is written, and King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 verse 22. He is but a faint type of our great Prince of Peace, who is the altogether lovely one. Fairer than the children of men, whom God has, anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, and, appointed heir of all things, Canticles 5 16, Psalm chapter 45 verses 2, 7, Hebrew 1 2. How wonderful to have him as the lover of our souls. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine, verse 2. Thus the song opens abruptly with these ardent words of his loved one. She has him before her eyes and heart. Transported with his beauty and his charming grace, how her heart is drawn out with a deep desire for more of those intimate expression of his love. The kiss is the expression of intimate personal love. One who has tasted that the Lord is good knows that there is nothing so delightful to the human heart as those sweet moments when one enjoys in the depth of the soul that intimate, tender love of Christ. It surpasses all that earth can give. Thy love is better than wine. Wine here is the emblem of earthly pleasure and mirth. There is something that is far sweeter and more satisfying than any pleasure that this world can afford. It is these moments of intimate exchange of love with our adorable Saviour and Lord, whose love to us is stronger than death. He died in love for our souls, but now is alive forevermore, his heart pulsating for us with that love that passes knowledge, a love that took him through all those death throes of Calvary's cross, and ever lives and abides in his breast in its unchanging everlasting strength for us. True Christianity is not a head knowledge of certain doctrines, but an intimate acquaintance with the living, loving Son of God. Alas, how many Christians seem satisfied with knowing that their sins are forgiven through his death, and fail to go on in fellowship with the living Son of God, whose love is better than wine. How much they lose in their own souls, for there is nothing that can compensate for lack of personal communion with the Lord. A soul that has been washed in the blood of Christ can never be satisfied with anything short of personal intimate fellowship with him.
No Christian can be happy, contented and satisfied who is not maintaining this personal touch with the living Lord. Notice how personal and intimate it is, let him kiss me. Thine ointments savor sweetly, thy name is an ointment poured forth therefore do the virgins love thee. So read verse 3 in JND's new translation. Ointments speak of fragrant grace. Thine ointments. Oh, how many and varied are the graces that abound in him, each having its special charm and all savor sweetly. Ointments were not only used for perfumes but also for healing. See Isa, 1-6. There is not a heartache nor a wound that his ointments cannot soothe and heal. Come to him with all your sorrows, disappointments and grief, you will find in him a balm for everyone. Thy name is an ointment poured forth. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole, it calms the troubled breast, tis manna to the hungry soul, and to the weary rest. Not only is the name of Jesus so filled with fragrance, but he has many names in scripture and each name has a special fragrance of its own. Time does not now permit us to speak of the various sweet odors brought out by his different names. Thy name is an ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. It is his love that draws out our hearts to him, and the more we are occupied with him and his love to us, the more we will love him. There is no use to mourn over your lack of affection for Christ or to try and fan up a bigger flame of love for him. Turn away from yourself to Christ and keep him before your heart. Self-occupation will never deepen our affection for Christ, but occupation with him will. We should feel how sluggish our affections are for him, Christ, but it is not by mourning over our coldness, but by meditation upon his love for us that our hearts are warmed up. This is important to see. So turn away from your cold heart to the warm glow of his affection for you and you will find your heart warmed by it. He loves us though there is nothing attractive in us. It is his nature to love. His heart of love cannot be satisfied without an object upon which it can bestow itself. But we love him because, he is altogether lovely. There is no lack of attraction in him, but alas how prone we are to let other things come in and take the place that should be only for him. We all feel the need of this ardent prayer found in our next verse. Draw me, we will run after thee. But let it ever be accompanied with that sincere purpose of heart expressed in these words, we will run after thee. The world is running after many things today. And all too often Christians are found running after this or that instead of Christ. No wonder their joy ebbs low and their light burns dim, and you see them restless and uneasy in soul. The things the world is running after can never satisfy an immortal soul created for higher things. God has called us unto the fellowship of his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. And he has given us a spiritual capacity, when he made us partakers of his own divine nature, to enjoy him, and to find our delight in things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Think back over your past experience of your most happy moments. I am sure you will agree with me that it was always at times when Christ was much before your mind and heart, when you felt that he was near you. Isn't it so? Then return to him again with your whole heart and you will find your joy will return. Let us beware what we run after. May these words ever be the earnest prayer and purpose of our hearts, draw me, we will run after thee. The king has brought me into his chambers, verse 4. Here is the glorious climax when the Lord shall take his beloved bride to himself. I go to prepare a place for you, said the Lord, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am. There ye may be also, John chapter 14 verses 2 to 3. But while we wait that glorious day our hearts long for, we have him in spirit with us now. So we may say, we will be glad and rejoice in thee, we will remember thy love more than wine, verses 4.
we will be glad and rejoice in thee. Here is a spring of gladness that will never dry, a source of rejoicing that can never be exhausted. It is a fountain of joy from which we can continually drink regardless of the circumstances we may be passing through. The poor sinner has no pleasure except what he can find in the shifting circumstances of a passing world, but the Christian has a well of joy in Christ that is never touched by changing circumstances. Therefore he can always be glad and rejoice. Rejoice evermore, says the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 and in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say. Rejoice. If your joy is not full it is because you have allowed yourself to become taken up with your circumstances instead of with the Lord who is above your circumstances. Ever looking down with infinite love upon you and having at his hand unlimited resources to take care of you. Oh, learn this great secret of true joy and contentment. True joy is found only in Christ. We will be glad and rejoice in thee, we will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee. It is important, though, that our hearts be also upright, if we are to rejoice in him. If you are not upright in your dealings with him or even with your fellowmen, your conscience will not allow you to be easy before him. Instead of rejoicing in him you will shrink back from his presence until you judge and put aright what is amiss. One reason why so many Christians are so restless and dissatisfied is because they have allowed things to come in between their souls and the Lord, or between themselves and someone else, and are not ready to own it and put it right. If you would be happy in the Lord you must be upright before Him. Let nothing come in between your soul and Him. If in an unguarded moment something does come in, go to Him at once about it and get it settled with Him. How lovingly He will receive you when you go to Him about it. He longs to have you happy and He knows you can only be happy in Him. He wants nothing to be in the way to hinder you. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, chapter 1 verse 5. A careful reading of this wonderful Song of Solomon will show that it is divided into sections, or parts, with each part having a theme of its own, taking up a certain point and developing it to a climax, which for the godly remnant of the Jews will only be reached in the millennium. Verses 2-4 to four of this chapter are complete in themselves, beginning with the awakening of the affections of the bride-to-be, and leading on to the full joy and rejoicing in the person and presence of the king in his royal chambers. This forms, as it were, an introduction to the whole book, and gives the general theme which is taken up again and again in each section and brought through to the millennial climax of glory. Only each time from a different angle, or from a different starting point, and enlarging on different detail. I am black, but comely O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, verses 5. This verse begins a new section which ends also with the royal palace in verse 17. It opens with the confession frank and full of what she is by nature, I am black, but also coupled with the full assurance of faith of what she is by grace. Comely, black as the tents of Kedar by nature, comely as the curtains of Solomon by grace. The tents of Kedar, made of coarse black goat's hair and seen in all the dingy blackness under the bright rays of the desert sun, is a fit picture of what we are by nature, full of sin. While the beautiful curtains, made for the temple of fine twined linen, blue and purple and gold interwoven, is the symbol first of all of what Christ is in the perfection and beauty of his person. But also of the believer as God sees him in Christ, clothed upon with all the beauty and perfection of his person and work. It is not by our efforts we have this place in Christ, but by a sovereign act of God's grace. But of him God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. The repentant prodigal in Luke chapter 15 had nothing to do in making or arraying himself in the best robe. 
he had only rags and confessed it frankly to his father, Father I have sinned, and am no more worthy to be called thy son, but immediately upon that confession the father gave the orders. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, verses 21, and 22. But wouldn't it be the height of discredit to his father if, after being clothed with that beautiful robe, the repentant prodigal would go about mourning about his rags or saying he was not beautifully dressed? True, he would feel how unworthy he was of it all, but that would make him love the father all the more and adore his love and grace that had provided him with such a beautiful robe. The believer may and should always frankly own what he is by nature, black. But he should never forget for a moment that God does always see him as comely, clothed in that beautiful robe that he himself has provided at the cost of the all-efficacious sacrifice of his son. No sin or stain can ever spot that robe because the blood of Christ shed once for all has purchased from all sin. It is important that the believer grasp this truth clearly. Otherwise he will lose much comfort and rest of heart and plunge himself into much trouble of soul and confusion of thought about his experiences. And another important fact that one should understand also is that the old nature never changes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. And it always will be as long as we abide in this mortal body. The flesh ever remains the same and it cannot be changed or educated into obedience to God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. The flesh is sure to show itself in the believer whenever he is off his guard or fails to walk in the spirit and by the spirit to mortify the deeds of the body. See Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 to 17, Romans chapter 8 verses 6, 13. But his standing before God is always perfect. Unchanging and eternal because it is based upon that perfect sacrifice of Christ that has fully answered once and for all for all sin and failure of the believer. No sin or failure can come up in the believer's life but what the sacrifice of Christ has already met it. And God always sees him clothed in the perfection of that work of Christ that has fully atoned for all his sins. The heart of the believer, however, cannot be happy in the presence of God where sin and failure has come in until it is owned and confessed. And why should we shrink back from owning all frankly to God, seeing God knows it all and has met it all in love and grace by the sacrifice of his beloved Son? and thus has made us always acceptable to himself in that beautiful robe furnished us through the atoning work of Christ. We have nothing to hold back, nor should we shrink back from the all-penetrating eye of a holy God, since he who sees all our blackness has clothed us in that beautiful robe of Christ's righteousness. It is an humbling fact to admit that I am black, but the soul can never be in its right state before God nor at rest in his presence until it learns and frankly owns this fact. Some mourn over every new source of evil they find in themselves, and are troubled and perplexed to find that it is there. But why is it? It is simply because they have not yet come to the point of admitting as to themselves the truth that the great apostle Paul had learned and frankly owned of himself, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing, Romans chapter 7 verse 18. Accept that as a truth once and for all and you will never be perplexed at any new evidence of your evil nature within. You will not expect anything else or different from yourself, and so, while frankly owning it to God, you will turn away from yourself altogether as knowing there is nothing good there. And turn to Christ as the only source of power for any fruit bearing for God. This is what the Apostle Paul learned and tells us of in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ, that is, he frankly owns and accepts that his old self has been seen of God as unfit to live, and has already had the death sentence put in effect against it in the crucifixion of Christ, who died in his stead.
he is through, then, with any more looking to himself for anything good from that old life that God has, in the death of Christ, already executed sentence against. What then was the source of that beautiful, devoted, Christ-like life of the Apostle Paul? This is what he goes on to explain, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me. It was no longer his old I, his old self, that produced such effect, but Christ, who had come into his heart as the source and power of a new life. He had a new life that was entirely of Christ and not of self at all. This grand and glorious fact is true also of every believer. When as a sinner we received Christ by faith, we received in him a new life, or nature, which is entirely distinct from the old self-life, or nature, that we have by natural birth. The believer has two natures, one the old nature, the old I or self, the other the divine life, or nature, of which Christ is the source and power. Now comes the practical question, how then is this new life to be lived out by us while we are in this mortal body, carrying about with us all the time that old nature also? This great secret is what Paul goes on to tell us. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is, while in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It was by faith. Not in any energy of his own, but, in the sense of his own helplessness to do anything by himself, he simply looked away from self altogether to the Son of God, who had given him a new life. For power and strength for every step, every word, every deed. Christ illustrated this important truth to his disciples in the parable of the vine in John chapter 15 verses 1 to 8. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. How simple. How practical. Just as the branch bears fruit not of its own self but by clinging to the vine and allowing the living sap and energy of the vine to flow through it and produce the fruit. So the believer also can only bear fruit for God by drawing the power and energy from Christ. Then the apostle goes on to tell of another great influence upon him, namely, the constraining power of Christ's love for him. As he ever looked up to the Son of God he was constantly filled with the sense of his great love in giving himself for him. And was ever reminded also that that sacrifice gave him a perfect standing before God. He would not want to rest on any other ground of acceptance before God than that perfect sacrifice that answered to God for all his sin and failure. So he goes on to say in the next verse, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. We have dwelt a little upon this truth contained in the confession of our verse in the Canticles 1 to 5 because we realize it is of such practical importance to every believer, and until it is clearly grasped, the soul will not make much progress nor be able to appreciate the beautiful figures we are yet to consider in the rest of this wonderful song of song. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me, my mother's children were angry with me, they make me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companion? If thou knowest not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Chapter 1 verses 6-8. It is the bride to be speaking here as in the previous verses. She is speaking of herself as burnt black by the hot rays of the sun as she was forced to hard labor in the vineyards of her oppressors. She was forced to serve their interests and had no time left to look after her own things. Her own mother's children, that is, her own brothers, were her oppressors, those from whom one would naturally expect affection and kindness. Thus she learned the sad fact that the world is swayed by its selfish interests so much so that even natural affections are brushed aside in the pursuit of their selfish ends. Prophetically, no doubt, this refers to the oppression of the remnant by the Jews under the Antichrist. 
but we will not now dwell on its prophetic application, but on its practical application to our individual experience, because there is a practical lesson here of great importance. The speaker here in these verses learns first of all by bitter experience what the true character of the world is. So often young Christians, charmed by the glare and glitter of the world, have to learn by bitter disappointment that it is all a vain and empty show. At heart the world is heartless and self-centered. Self-interest, selfishness, greed and lust are the great motive powers that keep the wheels of the world turning. The sooner the Christian is disillusioned on this point the better. So many young Christians turn a wistful eye to the world, thinking to find their satisfaction and enjoyment, but find instead that there is nothing there that can satisfy the deep longings of a renewed heart. And as a result the soul is left empty, restless and discontented. It is just such a state of soul we find here in these verses, and all disillusioned, restless and oppressed she turns to her beloved and asks, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. How sad, yet how like our natural hearts, that we try everything else before we turn to the Lord to ask him where to find the rest that he gives. Yes, there is a place where the sheep of his flock can find sweet rest at noon. Noon in hot climates like Palestine is the most trying time of the day, when the sun, a type of affliction, see Matthew 13, 6-21, beats down in all its violence. But the good shepherd delights to give rest to his sheep even during the most trying heat of the day. Dear reader, have you found this rest and contentment of soul that keeps your heart peaceful and calm during all the heat and bustle of the day, or when the hot rays of affliction beat upon you? These verses give us the secret of how we may find true rest for our souls. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. Notice well the order here, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest, feeding comes before rest. Her own soul was hungry. There is no food in the things of the world that can satisfy the longings of the renewed soul, and there can be no rest while these longings are left unsatisfied. Rest as to our sins is found as we rely in simple faith upon the finished work of Christ as our substitute. We know from the word of God the question of our sins has been fully settled to God's own satisfaction by the blood of Christ, and that we stand before God accepted in him in all the virtue and value of his finished work on the cross. This gives rest as to our conscience once burdened with the sense of our guilt, but rest of soul in another thing. Peace and contentment cannot be found in a hungry soul, not till the deep longings of the soul are met. These deep longings that God has implanted in every newborn soul when made a partaker of his own divine nature and eternal life, cannot be satisfied by the passing things of time and sense. An immortal soul possessing eternal life, is fitted for higher things than the fleeting things of this passing scene. Only in God's word that abides forever, and in fellowship with the Father and with Christ, the eternal lover of our soul, can we find food that will fully satisfy the appetite of the new nature. With this in mind we will now turn again to these verses and see with what wonderful simplicity and beauty this fact is illustrated. The picture here is that of sheep which have been feeding in the green pastures and, their hunger fully satisfied, are resting peacefully and contented during the heat of the day. A hungry sheep will not rest, but will be running about trying to find something to meet its hunger. If we are not feeding in the green pastures of God's word our souls will not find rest, for there only will you find that which satisfies the spiritual longings of the renewed heart. It is important that we begin the morning with feeding upon the word of God under the eye of the Good Shepherd in order to have peace and rest in our souls throughout the trying moments of the day. We cannot too strongly press the importance of a quiet time with the Lord over the word before the hustle and distractions of the day begin. A young Christian we know, who had to go to work early in the morning, made it a practice to retire earlier at night so he could rise in the morning in time for a quiet season over the word before leaving for work.
we might well learn from his example. Notice the expression here in this verse, tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, it is the language of a quickened soul who at heart loves the Lord but is out of touch with him. She is out of fellowship with the good shepherd. She has turned aside to other flocks not under his care. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companion? It is this personal nearness to the good shepherd himself that she had lost, but which is so essential to rest of soul. It is not merely that we should read the word but that we should get in touch with the good shepherd as we meditate upon it so that our soul is fed by him through it. It is this personal contact, this personal fellowship with the Lord himself that is so essential if we are to have rest and quietness in our soul. If thou knowest not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids by the shepherd's tent. It is the good shepherd himself now that answers her. And how gently he deals with this hungry soul. He does not reprove her sharply for having turned aside, but uses language that is suited to draw out her heart to himself. We may all learn from this and especially any that are used of the Lord to feed and care for his sheep. If thou knowest not go thy way forth. Ah, here is the secret. Go thy way forth. She was at a distance from him and moving in another world than that where he fed his flock. A shepherd never feeds his flock in the cities. In the Song of Solomon the city is a type or picture of the world which man has built up for the satisfaction of his own lusts and pleasures without regard to God. If you are saved and are still going with the world in its pursuits of lust and pleasure without God, you may be sure you are moving in a different world than that where the Good Shepherd feeds his flock. And your soul will starve. His loving words to you are, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock. Yes, go thy way forth, associate yourself with his flock, keep close to the good shepherd, feed in the green pastures of his word. And you shall find rest to your soul. And now one thing more. In the closing clause of this verse we read, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tent. When we are feeding upon the green pastures of his word, the Lord would have us give out to others also what we are enjoying in our own soul. Feed on the word of God, keep close to the good shepherd's trusted side, and bear witness for him, and you will find rest and happiness for your soul. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver, Canticles 1, 9-11. It is the Lord speaking here. As he beholds his beloved one, he describes what he sees in her that delights his heart. It is a privilege to know his thought about us, and especially, if we love him to know what he delights most to see in us. This description then of the beauty that he delights to see in his own is a subject of deepest, personal interest to every heart that loves him. I have compared thee, O my love, to a steed, new translation, in Pharaoh's chariots. What is the likeness to a steed in Pharaoh's chariots that he so admires? There is no doubt an allusion there to energy devoted to the master's service, and a walking and pulling together in harmony. But there is also another thought of still deeper significance. A verse in Job chapter 11 verse 12 will help us here, vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. The wild ass likes his own wild ways. He likes to run about at will and refuses to be bridled or tamed, or to submit himself to another's will. Is not this a striking picture of what the unregenerated heart is? But a steed in Pharaoh's chariots has been broken. It has learned to give up its own inclinations and to yield itself obediently to the impulse of the rein in its master's hand, and so spend its energy in its master's service. It has learned to give up all plans of its own as to what to do and where to go, and just leave all the planning with its master. It goes on its way depending for guidance upon the impulse of the rein held in the driver's hand. This driver of Pharaoh's chariot can be taken as a picture of the Holy Spirit.
what the Lord delights to see in his own is that they give the reins of their lives over into the hands of his spirit to be subject to his guidance in all things. How much energy is wasted in trying to carry out plans of our own devising instead of just leaving the Lord to do the planning while we go on step by step looking to him for guidance at every turn of the way. The Lord has a perfect plan for the life of every one of his own, and it is the best and most blessed plan possible. But so many Christians rely upon their own plans instead of surrendering themselves to the Lord and asking him to lead them in the way he has planned for them. It is no wonder that their life becomes a failure instead of one of usefulness and blessing. We get then in this figure of the horse in Pharaoh's chariot, the thought of one's energies devoted to the master's service. The will yielded up to him to walk in dependence upon the guidance of his spirit in the path of his choosing for us, and, as a result also, walking and working in peace and harmony with others who are likewise yielded to him. Let us each one ask himself or herself, is that what the Lord sees in me? How it must grieve the Lord's heart to see his own so often in strife and discord, or spending their energy for selfish pursuits, going on in their own ways, missing by far his chosen plan for their lives. No wonder their testimony is so weak, and their lives have so little fruit to his glory. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. Jewels speak to us of a beauty that is not ours naturally, but which has been bestowed upon us. They are therefore the fit symbols of those Christian graces, which are displayed in the believer's life as the fruit of the Spirit's working in the heart. These Christian virtues don't come from ourselves naturally, but are produced by the power of the Spirit of God. Where there is real surrender of ourselves to Christ and a giving over the reins of our lives into the hands of his Spirit, our lives will become beautified with a truly Christian character. In the tabernacle everything was overlaid with gold. The tabernacle is a type of Christ and the gold of the divine nature. The silver bases made of the redemption money speaks of redemption, but silver is also figurative of the word of God. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, Psalm chapter 12 verse 6. Every believer has been made a partaker of the divine nature through faith in the word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, 2, 1 to 2. As we feed upon the word of God and yield our lives up to his spirit, that divine nature will be manifested by us and the word of God lived out in all our ways. This then is the jewels of gold and silver which he delights to see in us. Are you wearing these jewels both in private and before the public? We will make thee bead rows of gold, new translation, with studs of silver. So the Lord and his spirit would beautify his own yet more and more. Some have thought that this may refer to the crown of glory that the Lord as King of Kings will bestow upon his queen. While the king sits at his table, my spikenard sends forth the smell thereof. Sitting together at the table enjoying the same things, is an expression of communion and fellowship. When one's life is yielded to the Lord, not only will the Spirit of God beautify it with all the Christian graces, but there will also be happy fellowship with the Lord. And while one is enjoying sweet fellowship with him, the heart will also overflow with worship, praise and thanksgiving for all his benefits. It is this that the spikenard is the symbol of. If there is little praise and thanksgiving in your life it is because you are not walking in close fellowship with the Lord. Thus far we have been considering these beautiful verses in their spiritual application to ourselves, but now before closing let us look at them for a moment in their prophetical application to the Jewish remnant. 
we read in Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 11 to 14, I deck thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets also upon thy hands, and a chain upon thy neck, and I put a jewel upon thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thy head, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. The prophet is here describing all that royal glory and beauty that the Lord had bestowed upon Jerusalem during the reign of Solomon. But Jerusalem was untrue to the Lord and as a consequence has lost that royal glory. She sank so low that when her Messiah came she cruelly mocked him, crowned him with thorns and spit in his face. But the time will come when Jerusalem, repentant and rejoicing in the Lord's forgiveness, will again be exalted at the head of the nation. What a joy that will be to his heart, and what a triumph for his grace, when he will again crown Jerusalem with royal glory as the fruit of his redemption and the work of his spirit in the heart. He will then be able to say of her, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. And she will say, while the king sits at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. And the whole world will look on in wonder rejoicing in the rich blessings of his glorious reign of peace and righteousness. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me, he shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphire in the vineyards of Engadi. Behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant, also our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fir, Canticles 113-17. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me, he shall lie all night betwixt my breasts, verse 13. This verse no doubt has its direct application to the remnant of Israel during the dark night of the great tribulation, when darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, see Isaiah chapter 60 verse 2. But it has also a beautiful application to believers now and so we will consider it first in this connection. The myrrh is a sort of resin gathered from a plant that grows in the east. It was used as a perfume and also as a medicine. It is the life sap that oozes out through the wounds made in the bark of the plant. It is, therefore, a reminder of Christ, who in love for us, was wounded for our transgressions and shed his blood. The reference here is to an oriental custom of carrying a small bundle of myrrh in the bosom because of its sweet odors. If we take Christ into our bosom, if we give him that full place in our inmost affections as the one who laid down his life in love for our souls. It is bound to give a sweet fragrance of Christ to all our person. We cannot copy Christ, we cannot imitate him in our own strength. As long as we look at Christ only as a model that we strive to imitate, we will never succeed. But as we meditate upon his sufferings for us, our hearts are drawn to him and we embrace him in our affections, and as we give him, who loved us and gave himself for us, the full place in our hearts, it will give a sweet fragrance of Christ in all our ways. This is the only way we can have a sweet odor of Christ about our person and ways. How much place are you giving him in your heart? He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Thus the most intimate place in the affection is given to him by his beloved one during the time the world is going on in the darkness of night. In John chapter 12 verse 46 Christ says, I am come a light into the world. And Zacharias, full of the Holy Ghost, said of him, the day spring, or sunrising, from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace, Luke chapter 1 verses 67, 78-79. But the world cast him out and he has returned to his place on high, and consequently the world is left in darkness. He will come again as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, to usher in that glorious day of his millennial reign. 
But while awaiting that great event, the world is sitting in darkness without the light of day, without Christ. The period of time we are living in is especially marked by Christ's absence, and the sad part is that he is not wanted. The gospel goes out worldwide but falls on deaf ears, only here and there a heart opens to receive him as the light of life, John chapter 8 verse 12. He has no place down here where he is wanted except as the hearts of his redeemed ones are opened to receive him. Surely when we consider how much he suffered for us, he is worthy that we open our hearts wholly to him and give him the full place there in our most intimate affection. When we do so the world cannot see him, but there will be a fragrance of Christ about our person that those around cannot help but take note of. Oh, let us give him then that full place in our heart's affections, so that we can say in the language of this verse we are considering, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphire, henna flowers, new translation, in the vineyards of Engadi, verse 14. The vine is often used by the prophets as a figure of Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7, see also Psalm chapter 80 verse 8. Verse 13 speaks of the place Christ should have in the heart's affections of his own during this present time characterized by the darkness of night. Because he who came as the light of the world was rejected and has returned on high, while in verse 14 we get Christ presented to us in his coming millennial glory. When his glory will be displayed in Israel before a wandering world. It is not sure just what plant is meant here by the Hebrew word translated camphire. Some translators have translated it henna flower, a sweet, showy, fragrant flower that grows in the vineyards of Palestine. If so, it would be a beautiful picture of Christ in his coming reign over Israel, no longer hid from the eyes of the world, but seen in all the display of his glory and beauty in Israel. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord shall reign in Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously, or in glory, nt, and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God, Isaiah chapter 24 verse 23, 35-2. What a blessed day that will be when the glory and beauty of Christ shall be seen like the henna flower in the vineyards of Engadi, filling the whole atmosphere with his sweet fragrance. The special hope of the church is the coming of the Lord for her to take her to be with himself forever. While the special hope of Israel is the coming of the Lord to reign in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. But when he is manifested in all his glory over Israel, the church shall be manifested with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory, Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. But the heart that is attached to Christ looks forward with delight to that glory Christ shall yet have in his coming reign, not so much because we are to share that glory with him, but because we long to see him have that glory which is due him, in this world that spit upon him and in mockery crowned him with thorns. The Father has purposed and will not rest till it be accomplished that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. And how the heart of his bride-to-be should rejoice as she looks forward to the coming glory of her bridegroom. Behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes, verse 15. As she is talking of what her beloved is to her, he now speaks up and tells of the beauty he sees in her. All this fairness is the fruit of his work of grace in her heart, drawing out her affections to himself. Behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair. The repetition shows the ardor of his enraptured heart as he gazes upon his bride now made perfect through his grace. Thou hast dove's eyes. The dove is the symbol of faithful love, of purity, holiness, and peace. When a dove is separated from her mate, she rests solitary and mourns till she sees him again, so is a proper emblem of devotion and attachment to Christ. 
the pigeon or turtle dove, both of the same family, was the only bird that could be offered on the altar as a type of Christ in his love and purity and devotion to God's glory. The Spirit, also, descended upon Christ like a dove Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. So, in the dove's eyes we can see that Christ-like, Spirit-produced, devoted, faithful, pure love. When he speaks of her beauty, she answers back, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. And then adds, Our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fir, verses 16 and 17. The bed in a house of cedar and fir speaks of rest in a place of incorruptibility and royal glory. The cedar and fir are the symbol of royal glory. David and Solomon both made houses of cedar. They also resist rot, so are the emblem of that which is incorruptible and enduring. The bed, which speaks of rest, in this house of cedar and fir, is green. Green is the most restful color in nature. It is a compound color made by mixing blue and yellow together. Blue is the heavenly color, and the golden yellow is the emblem of that which is divine and free from all alloy. The gold was used everywhere in the tabernacle as the emblem of the divinity of Christ. To sum it up, we get, then, in this green bed in the house of cedar and fir, a divine and heavenly rest free from all alloy in a place of incorruptible and royal glory.